Welcome to the Project on the Rocks podcast, where we bring you stories from the Project and Agile community, as well as inspirational learnings from leaders in the space. This podcast is in partnership with the Black Dog Institute, who aim to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. If you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link below. Welcome to Project on the Rocks. Today's guest is Rob Gaunt. Rob has delivered multiple outsourcing and offshoring programs in IT, finance, procurement, and HR. He's also lived and worked in London, Hong Kong, and for the last 10 years in Sydney. Rob, welcome. To get us started on my first ever podcast and your second podcast, I'm going to do some quick fire questions. Um, we'll start with, what is the best job you've ever had? Um, I would say... It was uh, a driving job I had when I was 17, passed my driving test a driving uh, job. fairly quickly uh, after turning 17 in, in England, and uh, I picked up a job uh, while, while at school driving lemonade vans around my, uh, my local town and delivering them, and it was great. Low stress, uh, good pay for relative to, to my age and experience, and uh, fringe benefits of being able to eat chips with curry sauce at lunchtime in various parts of the town uh, and, drinking, and, dr- and drinking sugary sugary carbonated water what more could what more could a 17 year old want were you making the lemonade as well or yep. were you running it around for, for someone else no no just just driving it was a it's a funny little it was a funny little uh, operation it was basically i think like three or four terraced houses in a midlands town and they'd knocked them all together and made a yard in the back it was a bizarre little place anyway that i'm sure they've been should have been bought out by one of the the big three uh three fizzy drinks makers in, <laughs> in the uk now <laughs> love it love it what about the worst job you've ever had uh it's been a few candidates for that um <laughs> a recent example was a few years ago in uh, Sydney, um, where I was I was hired for some skills and experience that I, I had. And uh, over the course of, well, I mean, a good indication when you're a contractor is if you have more than two interviews, the, the client probably doesn't know what they want. Uh, and it took me uh, probably about six weeks to realize in the job that they had really no fixed idea of what it was they wanted me to deliver. Um, and it was sort of a hire hire someone with skills and experience, and we'll try and work it out from there. Um, and that and that's fine, um, but the the chances are you're just always going to disappoint half of the st- stakeholders when you're in one of those um, situations. So um, I thank them kindly and moved on to something more interesting. So with your experience now, then Rob, if there was an interview process that was three or four stages, would you just dismiss it and move on, or? How would you deal Depends with that? Depends how hungry I am, Craig. Depends how hungry <laughs> I am. <laughs> so, 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 sometimes the bank manager requires you to take jobs that you don't like. Um, but, but just as a you know, just as a heuristic, as a as a as a warning flag, multiple interviews for a job that is of a short shorter term uh, duration. Um, is a good indication that that actually the people who are hiring don't really know what they want, and and they're probably always going to be upset and disappointed, um, regardless uh, of how good or, or what it is you uh, you deliver. Absolutely, I agree with that 100. Um, percent Like if you don't know what you're going in there to achieve, you can't really add the value that you you know you're capable of. I suppose as well. Yeah. All right. And what about your dream job? What does that look like? 
Uh, rugby correspondent for the Daily Telegraph in London. Really? I couldn't think of anything more boring. <laughs> well, it's because you're a soccer fan, mate. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, that actually leads quite nicely on to the next one. What is your favourite hobby and why is it going to be, uh, in, the, in this case, rugby? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I played rugby until I was 40 years old and, and now I've got four kids and they all play rugby. Uh, so I'm, I'm living vicariously coaching junior rugby at the moment. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's got great highs and great lows. Um, but I've done the I've done the hard yards. I've finished coaching the, um, the the age groups under ten, and I'm now into the under 15s and a, and a couple of age groups below that. So um, the, the great thing is, by about the age of ten, they listen to what you're telling them. Whereas uh, everything below that, they they just run around the pitch yeah. following the ball, and, and and it looks like you're herding cats. <laughs> That's excellent. And with the you mentioned there, you've got four children. Did they just fall into it because of yourself, or did you force them into it? Uh, my wife is uh, my wife is South African. Um, they had no choice. Yeah, fair enough. Two two uh, big rugby fans makes sense. Exactly. <laughs> well, we, we we met at an international rugby match, so um, yeah, the, 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 the kids really. Uh, well, we sent out we sent the, the the kids that didn't like rugby out to the orphanage. So <laughs> that's class. Tell us more about how you met at the rugby match. What's the story behind that? Uh, I, I went to Perth from London for a weekend to go and see England versus South Africa in the 2003 World Cup. Uh, it was uh, I, I, I was on a busy project, so I couldn't afford much time off. So uh, I, I knew that England were going to win that World Cup. Um, and so I thought I'd better go and see at least one match. So I flew out to that match and uh, she was sitting next to me in the stadium and the rest is history. Love that. Brilliant. Um, all right. T- changing it slightly here. Your... Favorite band musician? I imagine it's going to be some some old school people popping up here. Yeah, I'm I'm very I'm very very old school and a bit obscure. So I, I both both ends of the, the the popular music extreme. I I'm a massive Leonard Cohen fan. I uh, I saw Leonard Cohen live uh, multiple times, starting in the '80s and then all the way through to his final concerts here. Uh, but I'm also a huge um, early punk fan as well so um are you by i mean by, by early punk i mean pre-1976 so uh, iggy and the stooges uh they're, they're <laughs> my, uh, my my default um running playlist uh is raw power by iggy and the stooges best heavy metal um slash punk album ever made unfortunately both well before my time so i uh i can't relate unfortunately so the borders are open, Rob, and we can now officially go on holiday. What's what's next on on your list for your family? Um, I'd quite like to go back to India. I spend a, I spend a lot of time in India, or I have done spent a lot of time in India professionally. Uh, but I've also had several great holidays in India, and it's uh, it's such a massive and diverse country that um, it, it going to different areas is like visiting a different country. So I think um, probably our next next international holiday will be to the south of india uh it's an area a region i've not um, spent much time in um that, is that not, not so it's certainly not on holiday anyway right i'm with you so that's not goa is it that's De- definitely not goa i'm uh, i think i think it was a london band called the alabama three that wrote a song called i ain't never going to goa and uh, if you ever listen to the lyrics i uh, i completely <laughs> align with their sentiments <laughs> I <laughs> uh, love that. I love that. I'll be honest with you. Like India has never really been on my my list. Um, I've I've had some uh, you know friends and family go, and you know, they always get ill. Um, 
and and it kind of puts a bit of a downer on on the holiday. Um, but that's that's just yeah. me. I can't really comment until it's, I feel. I think India's a bit like that. You might uh, no, nobody sits on the fence. It's, you either love the place or you or you loathe it. Um, I I just happen to fall into the the love category. With the uh, with the getting sick, uh, my general rule in India is never eat in the hotel. Um, I just I've just got this theory that there's very little um, local trade in a hotel. So if they get if they make you sick, um, you just don't come back because you probably weren't going to come back anyway. Um, yeah. So 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 always eat always eat out, um, and uh, and eating on the street is is good fun. It's a bit like Russian roulette with food, um, which is good. Or, and and always always eat from the street stalls with a large queue. Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, that says a lot about the food, I suppose. That's fair enough. If in doubt, always make sure that you can see the TV from the toilet in your uh, hotel room. That's always a good, uh, <laughs> always a good tip. And, and what about uh, beer or wine? Uh, Favourite beer? Um, Marston's Pedigree. You can't get it here. It's really good. So it's a local brew from back home. Um, wine, uh, Chateau Neuf de Pape. Uh, again, difficult to get it here. But um, but Australian Australian wine is great. Australian beer is improving. I I actually think the Kiwis have got the edge over uh, the Australians when it comes to beer. There's a fantastic brewing um, culture down in the Canterbury region in New Zealand, um, and pretty much the best best bar I've ever been to in the Southern Hemisphere is in Christchurch. It's uh, a place called Volstead. Uh, which is named after the act that brought in prohibition in the um, the America in America, uh, and they've got um, nine of the British hand pools on the on the bar. So rather than um, carbon dioxide uh, pressured taps, they've got proper hand pools that uh, which are um, really uh, manually manually. I didn't. Pumped. Yeah, it's really good, really good beer there. I didn't know that um, they had a bit of a, a big beer scene down there to be honest with you i mean I, I i like their wine i think the wine is is very good um but yeah i need to have a look at the the beer selection and i also as well i bought the the beer back in the uk I, I i've not been home in like for nearly five years now so i don't know what it's like now but i thought they were quite late to the party with your kind of like craft beers and stuff as well aren't they yeah i suppose i mean in, in england there was always Camera, which was the campaign for real ale, uh, but that, uh, that had a fairly uh, fairly negative brand. It was mainly fat blokes with beards, um, <laughs> without, <laughs> without wives. Um, but yeah, the, 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 I, I, the, America seems to have pushed the craft beer thing um, quite well. I, I was there was a big gap um, in uh, in visits to the US a while back, and I was just absolutely amazed at how well um, the the US craft beer scene was going um mm. but yeah it's great more, more more power to to any of the the craft brewers it, it's just a bit of a shame that in in australia the, the model seems to be you don't need to have to make a massive amount of money building up a craft beer brand you just need to get the attention of the two big brewers to come and buy yeah. it's a bit like it's a bit like being a dot-com startup in the early 2000s you didn't really need to have a decent business model you just needed google to spot you um, but <laughs> You know, anyway, I mean, any 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 craft beer scene is good for the consumer. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. More to choose from. Next one, Rob, and it's the last one, is which actor would play you in a movie about your life? Uh, a young Robert De Niro, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 thinking, I'm thinking particularly Raging Bolera, you know, when I'm, I'm at my peak physical fitness. 
I'm yeah, not quite well, sure. I'm not quite sure any uh, any similarities actually exist between us apart from her first name. But I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll 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 make myself feel better by thinking Robert, a young Robert De Niro, could have played me. I love that. He's uh, he's quality as well. So it's um, good choice. Good choice. Um, so that's kind of the, the quick fire questions done there, Rob. So now what we're going to do is we're going to dive into a little bit about you know who you are and leadership. You know, obviously, it's a it's a project management, or we call it project on the rock. So we're going to do a little bit of a dive into that. But I guess to kick us off, what would be really good, Rob, is if you could give us a little bit of an insight to your story and how you got where you are today. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but by accident, mainly, Craig. Um, I, I, I'd like to say that there was some sort of career path that I followed, but I just seemed to fall into. Um, happy happy coincidences uh, so a lot of a lot of serendipity uh, so i mean so so right from the start i, I was um grew up in the 80s and uh there were very you know it degrees weren't really a thing in the uk uh much in the 80s so um i'd been playing around with home computers uh, a lot um and managed to screw up my exams um so basically did a uh, sort of a logic test. It's, it's quite similar to some of the tests that, that organisations are doing now to, um, to to look at your cognitive ability. For one of the banks, so NatWest, they um, they had what what you'd basically call an IT apprenticeship um, at the local data centre. There, there was one near where I grew up. Um, I passed their passed their test, got in, and then basically had an apprenticeship in, in IT. Um, and, and and it was interesting because the the IT back then was, it was all, you know, IBM mainframes, huge, huge things, the size of your flat um, sitting in a data center, but with, you know, less power than your iPhone. Um, but all of the disciplines that we, that we um, take for granted now in IT were developed by the, by the generation of people I was learning from there. So, you know, all, all of the stuff about data integrity and backups and, um, yeah. you know, make, making sure that you, you've got discipline when when implementing uh, new software by going, th- going through the various um, environments and, and, and testing. Um, that was all developed sort of the generation before I, I arrived and, and I was trained by those guys. Um, and, you know, it, it, it there's nothing new under the sun. So, it doesn't matter what the technology is the actual the actual underlying principles have remained the same over over 30 40 50 years um it's just that the the processing power and the 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 data storage has, has improved um so from there i um uh moved down to london spent a few years going through various roles in the bank um and then i got a job with a, a disaster recovery company uh, and it was an interesting time because it was during the um ira uh, mainland bombing campaign so um, there were a couple of very large bombs that went off in London that took out um, the, the data centers of a couple of the clients that we were we were contracted to so very interesting times um, basically invoking full disaster recovery for uh, large commercial organizations in in a you know in a backup data center um, which is fun um, I then moved on to uh, an opportunity in Hong Kong. Um, so I was there for the handover in 97, moving a, um, a bank's workload from Hong Kong to Singapore. So the bank uh, was ba- was actually a Taiwanese bank. And 
we all chuckled that they were getting paranoid about moving their workload from Hong Kong to Singapore. Uh, it turns out they were correct to do so. They were just really early. Um, so with the, with the recent events in Hong Kong, um, you know, they, they made the right call just very, very early. Um, and then I moved back to the UK and uh, started working for an outsource organization there. And I became the, the default transition manager. So that, that's the guy that, that manages the projects that uh, once you've won the business, you then uh, move the, uh, the workload or the services into the, the, the new delivery organization. Um, so there's quite a lot of HR components to that because there are, there are changes that happen to people's um, uh, jobs and their employment status. Uh, some, some people leave the organization, some people change um, employers. Um, and, and then uh, after a few of those, I bumped into some uh, well-suited, um, as in they were wearing expensive suits, uh, consultants that were working for the client and realized they knew less about what it was I was doing um, than they thought they did, but they were getting paid more than me. So I thought I'll have some of that. Uh, so then I switched into basically being a, a, a consulting project or program manager for outsourcing and then late, latterly offshoring um, projects and, and delivery uh, uh, delivery situations. Um, and I've been doing that probably for the last 15 years um, and I really enjoy it. It's really good fun. That's amazing, Rob. I mean, it's, it's crazy, isn't it, uh, how life takes you from one place to the next and then before you know it you're here in australia and got a family yeah. and and settled here um so that's good and um what you what you didn't mention there which um i did want to bring up um is you where, where along this journey did you go right i'm really good at outsourcing and offshoring i'm, I'm gonna write a book <laughs> <laughs> i never i never really I don't think I ever woke up and said I'm really good at it, Craig. I'm, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm a little bit more modest than that. But I, um, I, I just after after a after a series of sort of lessons learned during um, projects that went well, but a couple that didn't go so great, um, I, I could see a pattern. But then I, I actually just I was on holiday uh, and I was just thinking, sitting by the pool drinking, thinking. Um, so why is offshoring a thing? What happened to make offshoring? Um, uh, possible, and actually, it was it was quite an interesting journey of discovery because when you're in the middle of you know, history, in effect, you you don't necessarily realise it. So what I what I hadn't realised at the time, back in the early two thousands, was that um, all of the all of the major internet companies um, really started at the same time that most of the um, trans ocean um data cables were laid so there's so if you you can actually go to wikipedia and look at the um look at the data cabling of going across the atlantic as a, as a proxy measure for example that um it was just exponential the amount of uh, bandwidth that was installed between europe and the us and that coincided with the rise of google and amazon etc cetera, etc cetera, right so it's actually the infrastructure was the thing that that uh, enabled those organizations and and the same infrastructure is the is the is the is the reason why you now can um, um, have services services delivered from places like India or the Philippines um, and uh, at, at a much lower cost to organizations because the the bandwidth is there and it's reliable but the cost of bandwidth prior to that was just exponential um, you know any anyone who remembers 
uh, having to pay for international telephone calls um, sort of pre-2000, um, it was eye-watering. Um, you, you know, you, you'd, you'd really, if you were speaking to a overseas relatives, you'd really limit the time that you were on the call. You'd be very short conversations and sentences. Um, and, and that international bandwidth facilitated the whole thing. So, yes, I, I, I got curious and started doing some research and, and um, then sort of documented some of my lessons learned in, in the book that I wrote. Fantastic. Fantastic. And um, Rob, just to maybe some of our listeners that aren't familiar with it, what would you say is the difference between offshoring and outsourcing? Well, off- offshoring is yeah, li- literally doing it from another country. Um, outsourcing is uh, giving giving work that's not your core business to an, a third party organisation to to deliver. And the two things, so like a Venn diagram, there's there's, in, there's overlap between those two. So you could uh, you could offshore to your own delivery organisation that uh, the company owns and runs. Or you could offshore to an outsource organisation and they deliver it, and, and and that's that's generally the norm. That's um, that's what most organisations do, uh, mainly because the startup costs to build your own delivery centre in a in a location where you don't currently do business are quite prohibitive, um, and it has a very very much longer term payback. Yeah, do you do you find Rob as well like? With given your skill set there and and the value and and the money that you can save an organization that sometimes you you have to maybe sell yourself or sell the benefit to certain clients that may be not aware of it? I prefer not to. Um, the, you know, IBM, TCS, Infosys, Wipro have, have all got very well-paid salesmen. I don't want to be one of those today. Um, <laughs> uh, certainly. Uh, I, I, and, uh, but certainly, I, I don't think organizations need my skills at the point that they need to think whether it's a good idea to outsource or offshore. Um, I generally find the happier projects are the ones where they've, they've gone down the journey of discovery themselves. They've realized that they, Mm -hmm. that they want, or they need to do this thing. Um, And then, uh, and then I'll, I'll come in and assist them with, you know, selecting the right location, the right vendor, um, uh, building up the the scope of works, you know, what should we offshore, what shouldn't we offshore? For example, that's that's a critical um, decision point that uh, a lot of organisations spend a spend a long time staring into and and sometimes don't get the right answer. Uh, there there is there are there are function job functions and skills that you should never um, you should never um, give to a third party organisation or or it would be the one of the last things you'd give. So anything that's customer facing, I would recommend um, keeping close. Um, but there have been some success success stories with that, but uh, but there've been far too many failures as well. Um, and and then executing the project, so making sure that the um, that the the third party organisation that you've you've hired comes in, does the right job, captures the right knowledge, um, and and delivers to the KPIs and metrics that uh, quality metrics that you require. Um, and, and that's a lot of that's a lot of the interesting part of my job is is most internal departments don't operate to the same metrics that you would expect for a, um, a, a contractual relationship. So, um, you know, you're an internal IT department um, might might be reporting on their performance, but um, but the consequences of poor performance are less severe than uh, if it was a contractual relationship with a with another organisation. And 
you know, human nature being what it is, we respond to incentives. So um, let less severe, less severe consequences probably mean probably means that the uh, diligence is going to be um, is going to be lower. That's uh, not to badmouth internal IT departments the world over. It, it's just to say that unless unless you're operating to the same standards, you're not going to um, get similar results. For sure. So I'm going to pivot from this now, and I'm going to because you mentioned at the beginning there, you know, you fell into this by accident. And I think project management is something that that happens quite often. What what is your advice for someone who is aspiring to be a project manager, up and coming? Yeah, um, but maybe maybe it's a function of what's burned me in the past. But um, I'd I'd probably say um, ask your project sponsors to define what success looks like before you start the project. Um, and then when they've given you an answer, ask them again and again, and then remind them of that answer every time you meet them at a steering committee. Um, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of changes that happen to um, required deliverables in, project, in the project world. And a lot of these changes happen inside people's heads and are never communicated to the people who are actually delivering. And, and you see so much of this with, you know, scope creep and, and um, scope changes in, in projects that are just poorly communicated, you know, w- worst case, not to the project manager. Um, so be really clear on what it is you're going to deliver. Be really clear on how success will be managed. And, and you know, don't be afraid to confront the ambiguity in the, in the statements when you get them. You know, oh, oh, we want a bit of this and we want a bit of that. Well, okay, how much of this and how much of that? And what would that look like when it's finished? You know, um, and, and on that, um, uh, you know, I'm probably going to say something that's a bit um, uh, 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 against a lot of people's views here, but agile is not always the most appropriate tool. Um, agile is a great methodology for software development and, and and development of new products, you know, when you're iterating your requirements. But there are some situations where iterating your requirements is just not appropriate. You wouldn't build the Sydney Harbour Bridge by iterating your requirements. You know, that, that's got to cross a body of water. It's got to be a certain height for vessels to get underneath. It's got to be a certain width for, for roads. It's got to be a, have, a, have a, a rail line along it. Um, you're not going to be halfway through de- delivering that and still iterating, iterating the requirements for the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So use the appropriate methodology um, for the for the for the requirement. <laughs> I knew you'd um, try and sneak in the the agile topic in there as well. You're not the the biggest lover of it from from what I, I know. <laughs> uh, my, my my view on agile is when done well, it's really great, um, but but. Putting up a, a whiteboard and and having a stand up every morning is not agile, right? That's that that's mm. just that's just some of the symptoms of agile. Actually, what you want to do is you want to implement it fully and and done well. It's it it holds people to account for what they're supposed to deliver. I, I think it can also be used when done poorly as a bit of a a, a way of avoiding responsibility within teams. Um, so. Yeah, you know, and, and clarification of requirements is is critical if you want to hold people to account. You can't hold people to account for things that are poorly defined. 
For sure, for sure. I think like what you mentioned there around, you know, the Harbour Bridge, for example, like that for me, like, I could be wrong here, but the way I understand it is infrastructure related or moving something from A to B is is probably more of a waterfall. Like you, it's A to B, it, it, it has to be done this way. This is the requirement. That's very unlikely going to change. Whereas Agile is more fluid so it's specific to your kind of product projects where the the actual the end user the customer can change their mind halfway through that's yeah kind of where i would differentiate would you would you agree with yeah, that yeah precisely. Like that's where agile should be used yeah yeah precisely cool. precisely so you know if, if, if you create if you're creating something and 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 it's and it's valid for you to not know all of the fact all of the qualities of the thing then agile agile's great for that but um you know that, that there are many projects that don't fall into that category and um, and trying to trying to shoehorn them into the agile methodology i think becomes a, a, a best and inefficient methodology and at worst it becomes quite disastrous yeah for sure for sure what's your opinion rob on doing say for example a digital product sorry a digital project or an applications project in a in a waterfall way uh, not not really my wheelhouse, um, uh, Craig. It's, it's it, you know my, the it's been a long time since I've worked in um, IT development, um, and, and agile wasn't the thing when I started uh, started back mm. then. Um, but but certainly from projects that I'm, I'm I've been adjacent to, I would say that that's a, a perfect uh, agile's a perfect methodology for um, that kind of product development. For sure. So you've been in the game now, Rob, 15, 20 years or so. What would you say your leadership philosophy is now? Generally, my, my philosophy is communicate the why. Um, if, you, if you're trying to lead people to deliver a, a common outcome uh, or shared outcome, um, it, it's reasonable for them to understand why we're doing it. Um, nobody enjoys being in a job where they're just given uh, a list of instructions and no context. Um, so the, the more context you can give people, um, the more you can explain um, the, the logic and the, and the reason behind the path that we're taking, uh, the more likely it is that they're going to buy into it and come with you on the journey. Um, and that links back a bit to the point I was saying about advice for aspiring project managers. By, by explaining to other people why it is we're doing something, you may find that you don't really understand yourself, and that's the problem that you need to address first. Um, so, so by by communicating the why, often and um, and to all the all the people in, involved in the the program and the project, um, I, I think you'll you get a, a far better engagement. And you know, the the, the other aspects of leadership are, are, are you know, I think secondary to that. Um, if we're all going towards the common goal, we all need to understand why we're going to the common goal. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And you mentioned other, other aspects. If you had to name another two or three, what would they be? I respect. I think um, pe- people people have a choice. They don't have to come to work um, for you anyway. Uh, and, and certainly in the current environment, the market is very, very hot. Um, you can... You know, you can you can piss people off, uh, and they'll leave. They'll vote with their feet. Um, you know, you need to be respectful. I mean, that that's just general advice of being a human. But um, <laughs> but, but be but be respectful um, 
to people in the in the working environment. Yeah, you know, don't make them feel uncomfortable. Don't make them feel uh, like they're they're not, they're not valued. I think I already know the answer to this as well, but we always have this a discussion, you know, when we when we're speaking with, with candidates or clients or just people in general, you know, what is their leadership style or you know their personality style, and we we kind of put that down to driver, analytical, expressive, and amiable. What what bracket would you put yourself in, and what what's the reason for that? Uh, amiable, I I think. I think if we can't have fun at work uh, and we're spending seven and a half, eight hours a day at work, more, more probably if you're working from home, um, then it's a pretty sad life, isn't it? Um, so, and, and there are plenty of times when work is stressful and, and not enjoyable. So we should try and try and make the most of opportunities to enjoy ourselves. Uh, and that might be enjoyment in, you know, delivering something well and, and being congratulated for it or, or just, you know, just generally finding, finding humor in, uh, in situations. Um, uh, I think, I think like, uh, like, like most people, I'm generally very amiable, amiable until the precise moment I'm not. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> again, if, you know, if we, if we, uh, if we've agreed to do something and it's not been done and, and I, I feel that, that um that, that you need to be uh, you know you, we need to have a hard discussion then then that's going to happen but but i prefer not to do that i think like everyone i, I would always prefer not to have difficult conversations or or, or have have uh, negative conversations um and let's fill in the gaps with as much fun as possible that's interesting i had you down more in the driver category you know, get the outcome, get it now. Like that's, <laughs> I'm not, not sure if that's like a bad trait, obviously, but you know, it's just kind of, I've, I've seen a lot of project managers fall into to that area. Uh, I'm not saying all of them, but like, you know, like the, the, I guess good ones um, tend to have a little bit of that personality trait in there around driving the outcome or whatnot. Yeah, the the outcome is is hugely important. It it you know it's clearly you know, after 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 human life it's 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 you know it's the most important <laughs> thing. But but it but um, the outcome is a given. Um, actually, how you get to the outcome is is quite important too. Um, you know, no no point. There's no point building a house if you've uh, if you've um, pissed off all your neighbours in in doing so. Right, you, you, you know, there's got to be a sustainable element to. I like that analogy. Good analogy. Um, okay, now switching the conversation again here. Where do you see the next big shift in our industry? When I say our industry, I mean you know project services and technology and whatnot. Um, well, I mean, at the risk of talking about my, my own book, Eliminate Automate Offshore, available from all good retailers. Um, we've just spent. Uh, <laughs> We've, we've all just spent two years um, working on a laptop on a, in our dining room or, or in a spare room if you if you have one um, and you know people are now starting to return to the office um, but I think you need to ask yourself this question right if, if I could spend two years working in the spare room why does the spare room have to be in one of the most expensive cities in the world uh, and I think organizations in fact I know organizations are thinking this way too uh, there have been a couple of um, outsource and offshore projects that have occurred during the COVID pandemic. Um, they've been harder, 
um, international travel uh, helps with, uh, with the offshoring project, but they can be done without international travel. And if you've got a job that involves very little human interaction, a lot of looking at spreadsheets or, or, um, or documentation, and you've spent two years comfortably drinking your Nespresso's in your, uh, on, in your dining room, um, you need to consider that there's probably someone in the Philippines that would do your job for a third of the price. Uh, and and start thinking about your your future career as a consequence of that. What 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 aspects of your your role or your skill set are not going to be great if performed uh, from another jurisdiction, uh, and that's probably where you need to focus your future on. You know, so for example, uh, per personal personal anecdotes. I've had a couple of conversations recently with organizations on the west coast of the USA. So some, some of the projects I do uh, are occurring over there at the moment. And they're now considering whether it would work to have someone get up at 6am Sydney time uh, and um, work through three quarters of their day um, from a, a different location. Now, that that's a bit of a strange analogy, right? Sydney, Sydney being way more expensive than most places in the world it's a strange place to do offshoring but it, it's a you know it's a it's a reasonably niche um, area that we're working in um but you know it, with that in mind i think organizations are considering things that they wouldn't have considered in 2019. that's interesting what is your stance then on working from home and and returning to work because you mentioned there you know around the the skill set and, and what can't be almost taken offshore or outsourced that you what, what's your stance on working from home or um well personally it's great for me i like it i, li I like where i live um uh, <laughs> I, I i i'd struggle to know how i would have done this if i'd have had a two-bedroom apartment and, and a family i think there's a critical mass element to it uh, you know I'm, I'm i'm only going into the office now when i know that there are people who I want to interact with, who are also going into the office. There's quite a bit of coordination that's going on with my diary where I go, well, are you going in on Monday? Yeah, all right, I'll go in on Monday then. Uh, but if you're not going in on Monday, well, I'm, I'm not gonna jump in the car and drive for whatever and pay tolls on the roads to to get into the office, to only only be there on my own or, or with people that actually I don't really need to interact with today. Um, uh, I think that's an organizational problem that um, that companies need to to think seriously about uh, you know wh whether there's I hate to use mandates we've, we've had quite a lot of mandates recently but but you know prescribing to people that that certain teams or certain functions have a day where they'll need to be in the office uh, I, don't, I don't think we're ever going to return to five days in the office um, uh, so we need to think about what the not five days look like um, so that we understand um, why we're going into the office, right? The, 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 the quite nebulous reason of um, interaction um, is fine. Yes, and I do get that you don't get the water cooler conversations and the serendipity that, serendipity that you might have got if we're all in the same office together, but um, it's hard to put a value on that. Um, and I think organizations are struggling to work out what that value was to them. Um, and in the meantime, the uh, the real estate managers are are looking at forthcoming renewals and, and wondering whether it's worthwhile or not. Um, it's an interesting time. I, I think we'll look back in about five years' time and and we'll be far more settled on on where we're at. But I, I think it's a fool's errand to try and work out where we are now 
to try and work out what the future will look like in terms of um, roles and working and, and working in office space in uh, well certainly in places like Sydney and Melbourne. So let's see what the future brings. Yeah, it's going to be um, very interesting to see what happens, particularly over the next twelve to twenty-four months. I mean, obviously, being a recruiter, like I speak to a hundred people a week, um, give or take, in, in our industry, and there's there's a quite a large portion of you know candidates that I'm dealing with or, or clients that I'm dealing with that are really reluctant to come back into the office. And they're like, I've proved over the last two years that I can do this role remotely. Why do I need to come into the office? Now, it's, it's obviously there's pros and cons for both sides, but the, it, it's going to be interesting when organizations do, st- like you say, mandate, like when they do start to mandate two days in the office or three days in the office, what the people in those roles will actually do. I think, um, I think, I think the way to get people back in the office is positive incentives rather than negative incentives. You know, ma- mandating people to, mandating people come into the office may have a may have an unintended consequence of them not coming into your office ever again and going to someone else's. Um, so the, I think organisations need to need to consider how they're going to incentivise positively to get their uh, their workers back to the office space. I mean, also they need to think about whether they need them to, but that's that's a different conversation. Yeah. One one last thing on this topic, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole with it, but like I've I've spoken with a few candidates and, and they've said, If you want me to come into the office, you need to pay me more. <laughs> What's your take on that? <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, k- kudos for your bravery. Um <laughs> Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. You, you, your, your individual pay negotiations are, are very much based on your skill set, the requirement, and, and the circumstances. You know, the, the, the shoe mm. might be on the other foot next year. Who yeah. knows? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, Rob, from your side of things, I mean, obviously you've had a very successful career, um, still going. You know, who is your mentor? You know, what what impact have they had on you to to become the person you are today? Couple. I've had a couple of mentors. Um, more, more than a couple. I had lots of mentors, but two that, two that spring to mind. Uh, right at the start of my career, there's a, there was a guy in NatWest called Tim Johnson, long time retired now. Uh, and, and he had this great ability to cut through the bullshit in, um, in, in IT. Uh, I, I, I do recall one of his very blunt quotes, computers are just data in, function and data out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay yeah if you put it like that yes i suppose that's really what all they are yes um but yeah he, he was he was very good at um at, at analyzing situations looking looking at the logic and um and and, and building the solution appropriately and I, I learned a lot from him in uh, in the it space and then um much later in my career uh derek damper uh sadly no longer with us uh in hong kong um, and I learned a lot about commercial negotiations with him. Uh, he was his his discipline in um, just documenting the evolution of a negotiation so that he could then refer back to it and make quick decisions was was just remarkable. I, did, I, I remember sitting beside him in a in a negotiation for a, a managed services deal, and and he just had this set of file notes that he he could literally just pick it out and go ah right well we agreed at meeting blah 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 that we do this this is it was just yeah 
sounds simple. Uh, very few, very few of us have that discipline. But when you watch it in action, it's just remarkable. Um, all right, cool. And then, what what advice would you you give your twenty one year old self, Rob? Uh, hey, Rob. In a couple of years' time, put everything you own into Apple stocks. And no, I don't mean. <laughs> and no, I don't mean the Beatles organization. <laughs> uh, but seriously, we, we wouldn't be here if I'd have done that, right? I would. I would be. I'd be in, in early retirement. Um, I, I think just general advice uh, in every job you do, understand the value you provide. So, how do you make money for the business if you're in a commercial organisation, right? And, and the closer you are to where the money is made or the money is saved, probably the more secure your position is. Every other job is just an expendable overhead if you think about it that way. Quite powerful, that. <laughs> and now to wrap this up, what are your three pillars to being a successful leader? I'm not sure I'm the best person to act, ask because I'm, I'm generally, you know, often, often I, I work as a bit of a lone wolf. Um, I do have project teams um, in in the roles I perform. Um, but probably the better thing is for me to explain what I've seen others who are successful leaders demonstrate. Um, I think open communication, again, you know, that, that, that telling people the why, being very clear on what's happening, giving as much information as you can about uh, discussions that have happened at levels in the organization above you without being indiscreet, obviously, or, or, uh, or giving away secrets, um, you know, explaining freely why, why we're here and what we're doing. Uh, I think good leaders are also not divas. You cast a long shadow as a leader. Uh, people, uh, people are always watching you uh, and they're watching you and listening to you very closely. And, you know, as I, t- as I tell my kids, always watch for the difference between express expressed preferences and revealed preferences and you know that a, a classic example in politics is the uh, is the is the the labor politician who says that state schools are great and then they send their kids to a private school and that's the difference between expressed preferences and revealed preferences you know if, if there's no difference between your expressed yeah. preferences and your Fair. revealed preferences people people respect you hugely hard, hard to put your finger on why but uh, you know, and what aspect it is, but pe- people do like to be around great leaders, um, and they're they're often that's where the energy is and where the fun is. H- hard to describe why, but it's, it's probably different for different people. Um, and, and it's you know, and it doesn't look like David Brent, Ricky Gervais's character in the office <laughs> either. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned there that you know you're you're not a a leader in a sense because you're more of a a lone wolf. Um, I mean, I'd imagine that partly comes down to the fact that you're getting rid of everybody's roles and sending it all offshore. But um, <laughs> what I guess, I guess, like the way I kind of view it, and you, you know, with different perceptions and whatnot. But I would argue you don't actually technically need a team under you to be a leader. You know what I mean? Like you could still possess yeah. those those traits and skills that people look up to you or, or learn from you or uh, even like what we just mentioned there about being a mentor, like people look at you as a, as a mentor as well. Yeah, just to take issue with, I don't, I don't send everyone's job offshore. There, there, there will be, there, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a team that remains. And no, 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 needs, no. Yeah, but, but the point is, is that team needs to stay motivated, right? And, and you know, outsourcing projects are difficult change projects and there's a lot of survivor guilt at the end of it. Um, and... 
getting those people to remain remain or re rediscover their motivation is is a critical skill and um and usually i'm not their direct leader um but i'm advising their direct leader and and it, it it's important to you know go through the 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 kubler ross stages of grief as quickly as possible and get around to the other side of acceptance um and uh, a good leader helps their team do that absolutely bang on um now Rob, what we're going to introduce into my podcast moving forward is um, something I've actually taken now of uh, the diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett listening to his podcast, but each guest will leave a question for the next guest. Now, unfortunately, there's no question for you because you are our first guest, um, but what question would you like to leave for our next guest? Do you think the Sydney CBD um, will remain a ghost town this time next year? So if we were talking, if we were talking at the middle of March, 2023, would we still be seeing heartfelt articles in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, about um, empty office space and um, and bankrupt cafes? And and why why do you why why do you believe that? That's really good. Thanks for joining me on today's podcast, Rob. It was a pleasure having you on. 